Hello, and welcome to this Solace Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solacechurch.com. Matthew 5, uh, I'm going to read verses 17 through 20 out of the New King James Version. Uh, Would you follow along with me? The verses, Mike, if you could uh, bring them along, will be up on the screen. All right, Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, verse 17, says, Jesus speaking, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of heaven, rather. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This is, and these are, the, not, this is not just the word of God, but these are the words of Jesus. Uh, let's pray together. Lord, thanks for your your word. Jesus, thank you for communicating the heart of the Father to us, and we're thankful that, that, God, you have preserved this record over time for us to be able to learn from it and be changed by it even today. God, what we're going to focus on today is this truth that um, all Scripture has been given to us by inspiration. It's been breathed out by you, and Lord, we don't want to waste that opportunity that you've been given us to hear from you, to look into your word and see you, to be changed by you. So we invite you now, God, to even breathe out and over this time, to fill me with your spirit, that I might be able to communicate your heart, that I might be able to communicate your word. We, we are ultimately tuning in right now. We're gathered this way right now for you, Jesus. We ask for you to speak to us. Take God, I pray, Would you perform the miracle of taking what I've prepared and applying it to each of our lives personally so that when we walk away from this time or click out of this time, God, we would know that that you spoke to us. Um, So Jesus, I pray for you to reveal yourself. Holy Spirit, speak to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, this morning, I want to begin with my title, the title of my sermon, and the title this morning is simply Scripture According to Jesus. Scripture According to Jesus. Uh, This is such a remarkable passage here where Jesus is talking about his heart for Scripture, specifically what we would call the Old Testament Scripture. But it's important to sort of fill in the potential context that this passage falls in. Uh, We don't know if there was a specific question that provoked uh, this comment that Jesus, and these comments that Jesus makes here in verses 17 through 20 about the Bible. But here's what we know. It's possible. Uh, Here's what we know. We know at this point, Jesus is touching the hearts and lives of the multitudes. That's what chapter 4 tells us. Jesus' ministry and influence is on full 
force. As he is healing the sick and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, there are masses flocking to him. And as they come to Jesus, the words of Jesus are radical and they are liberating the masses that are coming to him. Uh, Jesus is teaching about the kingdom often, about the kingdom and character of God in a way that, that is sub- subversive to the oppressive religion of the day. Uh, Jesus is coming speaking, uh, speaking blessing and good news and grace and, and, and the hope of God to the marginalized and the outcast. Uh, people are, are being transformed. The lives of his followers are being transformed by his word. Uh, you could say that Jesus is trending at this moment, and his impact is growing. But perhaps, as that is happening, among the Jewish people, there is this question that starts to arise. Okay, this Jesus is amazing, and this, this rabbi is so insightful, and this spiritual teacher Uh, is so profound, but how does he feel about the Bible, (laughs) right? Uh, That's probably what they're wondering. I mean, this is so great. This Jewish rabbi is speaking on behalf of God in such a a liberating way, but how does he feel about our fathers, our ancient fathers, the Jewish fathers? How does he feel about the law and Moses? What about the prophets? Uh, That's sort of the question that may arise? How does he feel about the Bible? Which, by the way, is a great question to ask of any influential spiritual teacher. Okay, they're charismatic, they're funny, they're influential, but what do they think about the Bible? Okay, and so this is a good question that is coming to, potentially coming to Jesus's ears. Nonetheless, we see Jesus, whether this is a response to a question or not, Jesus certainly feels the need here to express how he feels about Scripture. Now, you're wondering, Andrew, I don't see the word Scripture listed in the verses that we just read. Um, And that's because you're not a first century Jew. In in that culture, the phrase, the law and the prophets, that's the phrase that Jesus uses there in verse 17. Do not suppose that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. Uh, That was an expression used to describe what we would call the Old Testament. In fact, sometimes it would just be described as the law. Now, that specifically can refer to the first five books of the Old Testament. And we know the prophets, uh, they, they encompass uh, all the major and minor pro- prophetic books, uh, apocalyptic literature of the Old Testament. And then you also have the, the writings, which are things like the Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Song of, Song of Solomon, which was every you know, middle schooler's favorite book growing up. You know. um, but you know, when, when, when Jesus is speaking here about the law and the prophets, to those looking on, he knew that he was referring to the Bible, the scriptures. Now, again, to the Jews, it it wasn't the Old Testament. To them, there was no New Testament. It was just the Testament. Um, And they're wondering, how does Jesus feel about the law, the word of God, the the recorded um, record, the documented record of God's word and work to and through his people? That's what it was to those looking on, the authoritative record of the Bible. Um, and they're wondering, Jesus, how do you feel? And Jesus gives a bold response. I love that he doesn't sugarcoat his answer. He doesn't sidestep the question. Jesus deals with this question or, or this concern, this matter head on. And here's what he gives us. Jesus gives us three things regarding his opinion and his posture, you could say, towards Scripture. 
The first that we see is what, we will, what we'll call Jesus' relational standing with Scripture. This is the first thing Jesus gives us there in, in verse 17. How does Jesus begin by describing how he feels about the Bible, about Scripture, the authoritative Word of God? Uh, well, he starts with his relational standing with Scripture. And he says it there in verse 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but notice this phrase, we read it again, verse 17, but to fulfill. Uh, the word destroy there, it, it means to dismantle. It, it, it specifically is used to describe the, the, the tearing down of an institution, okay? And, and Jesus is here uh, wanting to clear up the fact that in his ministry, though it might be contradictory towards the method and the message of the religious elite of his day, though it might contrast that, he wants to make it clear that his ministry is not there to tear down the authoritative institution and principles of the Old Testament. Jesus is not there to do that. There are some people that teach that, okay? Uh, today, there are, it's kind of like you have two flawed ideas. You have, you have one view that said, that kind of, it's like, we'll, we'll receive Jesus, but we'll disregard the Old Testament, you know what I mean? Like, disregard the moral codes, disregard the prophets, and there's a lot of people that all they ever read in the Old Testament is like the Psalms. It's like, David helps me pray. I'll read that, all right? But mostly, it's the New Testament. You have the other hand, uh, if that's more of kind of a liberal view to Jesus, you have sort of the legalistic view, which like, man, I love, I want all Old Testament and I, don't, I kind of disregard Jesus and what he's accomplished. But Jesus doesn't have time for any of that. Uh, Jesus cuts right through both of that. And he's, he describes, first, I'm not anti-Old Testament. I haven't come to tear down the scriptures. But he doesn't just say, I'm pro-Bible, okay? Um, you can't be more pro-scripture than how Jesus describes himself here. In fact, you literally can't, Okay. Because it's only Jesus who he says is the very fulfillment of it. I'm not against the Old Testament. He says, I'm the point of the Old Testament. Okay? I have not come to destroy. He says, don't think it that way. It's important. Notice he says, do not think that I came to destroy, but I've come to fulfill. The first way that Jesus describes his posture towards the Old Testament is, again, his relational standing. He says, I am the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And this is a consistent theme all throughout the, me the ministry and message of Jesus and the New Testament. Uh, look at John 5, 39. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of his day. He says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. He says, but these are they which testify of me. The scriptures, the law and the prophets, Jesus says, they're about me. If you, you go on a couple verses later in John 5, 46, he says, for if you believed Moses, then you would believe me. For Moses, he wrote about me. Isn't this interesting? The idea here is that the Old Testament is all about Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying of himself. Um, you could say it this way, that the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, preach a one-point sermon. I have one point today. This is what the Old Testament would say, and it's this. Write this down, Jesus. Jesus is the point, not just of the Old Testament, but of all Scripture. In fact, we see this 
in the resurrection of Jesus, after Jesus resurrects from the dead and he is appearing on the road to Emmaus to a few of his disciples, Luke tells us that beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a sermon that must have been to sit under. Imagine walking along the way, sitting down by the side with the resurrected Jesus, the, the resurrected king, and he begins to preach a sermon to you, beginning at Moses, going through all of the prophets, you know, imagine taking them through Isaiah 53, and just expounding how he is the point of the Bible. What a cool thing. Uh, Jesus, again, is the central focus and figure and point of the Bible. That is his relationship to it. The way that Jesus describes it is he says, I'm the fulfillment of it. It was all pointing to me. Can I just say this, uh, modern 21st century Gentile Christian? Um, you and I should engage with the entire Bible. We shouldn't just live and camp out in the New Testament, what we call, we've divided up the, the Old and New Covenant books. All of the Bible is a big portrait of Jesus. You can see Jesus in Genesis. Jesus is in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus. That's a great read, okay? A lot of Jesus in that one. All right, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. The whole account of Scripture leads us to Jesus. Do you want to know, get to know Jesus? Well, then read and study and learn the Scriptures which are about him. That's what he's giving us here. Now, uh, I pointed to this verse here in Luke 24 where Jesus is teaching the Old Testament and showing how it points to him. In fact, by the way, that's what the entire New Testament does. I don't know if you guys realize that. People are like, I like the New Testament. Well, a, a large majority or a, a large, uh, there's a large um, amount of content in the New Testament that is just the Old Testament. Like most of the New Testament is just like, here's the Old Testament verses and here's how Jesus fulfills it, right? And Jesus, that, Jesus does that here. Now a few verses later, he's with the rest of his disciples and in verse 44 of the same chapter, Jesus says to his disciples after resurrecting, he says, these are the words which I spoken to you while I was still with you prior to his death and resurrection, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Okay? Now, this is the specific theme of Matthew. You see this phrase used over and over again. Jesus uses it here of himself, but Matthew is constantly trying to show uh, that Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the bridge between the old and new. He's the one that, that fulfills every promise about the Messiah. Uh, now, here Jesus is, is speaking that to his disciples. He's constantly telling them, listen, this had to happen this way so that it could be fulfilled. That, that, that again, is what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about, again, his relational standing to the Bible. He is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. Now, a good question to ask here would be, um, how? Okay, Jesus, how have you fulfilled Scripture? What does that mean? When Jesus says that he's the point, right, and he's the fulfillment. Now, uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to give you each of these one by one as a point because you know that we will be here until tonight. And so here's what we'll do. Let's just look at each of them here uh, next to me. Hi. All right. Uh, each of these uh, ideas are, are important key ideas about how Jesus has fulfilled the scripture, fulfilled what he would call the Bible, right? The, the, the law and the prophets. He's first fulfilled it prophetically, prophetically. 
Uh, The idea here is that Jesus is the prophetic hero of the story. The story, as we know, in the beginning started really good with God, making really good things and calling us to a really good purpose with a really great vision of what this world would be as we co-labor with him to make it beautiful, to, to carry on the story of God. But we also know that that story took a pretty harsh turn, a downturn, when we all co Instead of laboring with God, we co-labored with the enemy in rebellion against God. Sin entered the world, and all the decay and brokenness and corruption and division, even death itself has spread to all men because all sinned. When you read the Bible, you know that despite how bad things are, there's always this promise of a hero who's going to make things right again. That's the theme of the Old Testament. And we see Satan constantly trying to kill whoever the potential candidate could be. Is it going to be David? Is it going to be this next king? And that's the story. And Jesus is that prophetic hero. Jesus is the main character, the star of the Bible. Everyone else is a supporting cast member, right? Uh, When we read the story of David, for example, we shouldn't see that as an example, you know, just primarily about how we need to defeat the big giants in our life. But you've heard it well said that that we're not King David facing Goliath. We're the Israelites hiding behind the rocks, okay, (laughs) fearing for our lives. Jesus is the hero who slays the enemy. And Jesus shows up as the fulfillment in that way, prophetically, the prophetic hero. And when I say prophetically, I don't just mean that there was a general promise of a hero, but there are specific prophetic promises of what this Messiah, this anointed one, would do, what he would be like. There are hundreds. And in Jesus' first coming, Jesus fulfilled uh, over 300 plus of those prophecies, those promises. We believe that there are still many prophecies to be fulfilled at his second coming. But in his first coming, over 300 plus, you may have heard of the exercise before that, that, that kind of tried to explain the odds. What are the odds of, of just an average Jewish man at that time, or you or I, um, fulfilling even just eight of these prophecies, right? So l- let me give you eight of them, all right? So Jesus, the Messiah, had to be born in Bethlehem. Uh, that was one of the prophetic promises. Uh, betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. Maybe you're like, I, that's happened to me. Okay, so you got one, all right? Uh, you're betrayed by 30 pieces of silver, okay? On like your video game, maybe. I don't know, all right? Um, thirdly, Messiah's clothes would be gambled away. The Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced. The Messiah's bones would not be broken. That's Psalm 34. The Messiah would be born in the tribe of Judah. That's Isaiah 37. The Messiah would be called out of Egypt. That's Hosea 11. And here's the eighth one. Messiah would be buried in a rich man's grave. So that's just eight. Jesus fulfilled 300 plus. But the odds, have you ever heard of this exercise? The odds of you or I fulfilling just eight of those prophecies that I just read. Um, It's equivalent to the odds of... Filling the entire state of Texas with a hundred trillion silver dollars, that's two feet high, if you're wondering in the state, how high would that be? Two feet high in the state of Texas, okay? A hundred trillion silver dollars. You mark one, you throw it into the, you you fly a helicopter that you borrowed, okay? You throw the, the coin down, and then you mix up the state of Texas, okay? And you mix up all the coins, and then you send a, a blindfolded man into Texas, and he can travel as long as he needs to, and first try, he's got to pick up that marked coin. Those are the odds of you or I or anyone else fulfilling just eight of those prophetic promises. 
Jesus fulfilled over 300. Okay? So, Jesus is the fulfillment, prophetically. He's the fulfillment, let's move on to this one, legally. He's the fulfillment legally. Uh, uh, Jesus, when it comes to his own life, fulfilled the law of God. He fulfilled the moral law of God. No one throughout history, no one in the history of the human race has ever perfectly kept the moral law of God, to love God and love my neighbor perfectly. Uh, But we also know more than just his performance in his life and being the perfect substitute, the spotless lamb that never sinned, Jesus also fulfilled the law sacrificially. Because as that spotless lamb, he would go to a cross. And in dying on that cross, Jesus fulfilled not just in his life the moral requirements of the law, but Jesus in his death fulfilled the ceremonial and civil requirements of the law of the Old Testament. This is what we mean. By the way, this is real teachy today. Not as preachy, a little more teachy. I hope you're still with me. Okay? In Jesus' death, he fulfilled the law, the ceremonial and civil laws of the Old Covenant. The best account of how Jesus did this is a book in the New Testament called the book of, can you guess? I'll give you a minute to type it in on Facebook, okay? What is the book in the New Testament? Welcome to Trivia at Solace on Sunday morning. What is the book in the New Testament that best describes how Jesus has fulfilled the ceremonial and civil laws of Israel? Anybody here in the room want to guess? Nobody, nobody's actually said a single word, to be honest with you. <laughs> They're all, I think they're all thinking. All right, the book is the book of Hebrews. I mean, it's even named, like, you know, okay, Hebrews. All right, um, so the book is, someone's like, the maps. No, okay, not the maps, all right. The book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews describes how uh, Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial laws of God through his blood sacrifice. You no longer need to make sacrifices for sin because Jesus was offered once and for all. He fulfilled the law. You no longer need a priesthood to mediate between you and God because Jesus, 1 Timothy says, is the one mediator between God and man. He is the great high priest that has made a way for us to have direct access with God. You no longer need a physical temple. You can do church through a video camera, okay? You, You no longer need a physical temple of worship for now the temple is the people of God. You no longer have these dietary restrictions of the old covenant Remember, a lot of the laws that were given to Israel in their time were not just ceremonial, but they were also civil. God gave the law to Israel to give them a standard of holiness that would ultimately point them to dependence on him, realizing they could never keep that law. But it also was for them to be a light to the nations around them by the way that they would live as a holy priesthood, representing God to the world. Now, how did that go? It didn't go so well, okay? It didn't go so well at all. Jesus comes to fulfill the law. So today, the civil, uh, the civil law that God had to govern the nation state Israel doesn't apply today to the church. Uh, why is that? Because today, God's people aren't a single, you know, nation state. We are today, the church, a multicultural, the people of God are a multicultural, multi-ethnic, diverse, and global community. Different. You had a theocracy back then in Israel. Today, we're called to obey the laws of local government, okay? That's a whole nother conversation, okay? But Jesus, he has fulfilled the law prophetically. He's fulfilled the law legally. He's fulfilled the law also interpretively, interpretively. I think that's a word. I didn't get spell checked on it, okay? Um, What does this mean? How does Jesus fulfill the law interpretively? Well, he 
is the fulfillment of it prophetically. He, in his life and death, he fulfills it legally. But then as Jesus comes to reveal the heart of God further, further progressive revelation, now the word is made flesh and is dwelling among us, expounding the word of God, Jesus brings greater clarity to what the heart of God is and what the word of God says. You had people in that culture, and we're going to see this over the next few weeks, six examples of Old Testament laws that uh, the religious of the day had sort of reduced to behavior, um, uh, behavior-enforced kind of codes. And, and Jesus is going to come to interpret the heart of God, to, to bring the heart of God ultimately, hopefully, to the heart of man. And that's another way that Jesus came to fulfill the law, to, to further our understanding of the heart of God, okay? Um, so, that is point one. Are you nervous? Don't be nervous. We'll, we'll keep moving, okay? Point one was Jesus' relational standing with Scripture. Uh, the second one, it can move a little, uh, won't take as much time to unpack, but it's still really important. The second thing we see is Jesus' reverent stance towards Scripture, okay? First, we see his relational standing um, what is it? With scripture, I think. Okay. Um, his relational standing with scripture, how he relates to the Bible. He is the point of it. Okay. He's fulfilled it. Uh, and we also see him go on to describe his own reverence stance toward scripture. We live in a day and age of stances. Been asked that lately? What's your stance? Where do you stand? Okay. Um, the most important question that you can answer in regards to your stance is where do you stand with the word of God? For that will inform every other stance. Where do you stand with the authority of God's word? And not just where do you stand philosophically, but where do you stand practically? Um, Jesus, notice this, Jesus stands in a place of reverence towards the authoritative word of God. And notice the way that we see that there in verse 18. He says, for assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, which is not going to happen, uh, it didn't happen in his time. Uh, this is a theme of, of, by the way, of the Bible as well, sort of the immutability of the heavens and, and, and the earth. You kind of have both. You have the instability that they're going to pass away. That's kind of, that's, that's very New Testament. We have a new heavens and a new earth coming. But you also have the endurability of heaven and earth. Like, uh, if something is going to, to really last, it's got to outlast heaven and earth. Like, that has some staying power. That has some authority if it can outlast heaven and earth. You know what I mean? Like, um, like there's some genres of music today. Like, the new hip-hop world, which I don't even call it hip-hop. I don't know what it is. Like, that kind of music is not going to last until heaven and earth pass away. It's going to last another year, I think. Anyway, okay? But Jesus is talking about the staying power of God's word. He says, heaven and earth will not pass away until, notice this, uh, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Till all is fulfilled. Here's Jesus saying this. Nothing is going to come against the word of God coming true. The story is going to come true. The promises are going to continue to be fulfilled. It's all going to be fulfilled. And he says nothing is going to 
threaten that. Nothing is going to hinder that. Uh, the way that Paul, uh, Peter says it in 1 Peter, he says that all flesh is grass. And like the flower of the earth that fades, like, like the grass of the earth that fades, all flesh is going to fade away, but the word of God is going to endure forever. This is true. The word of God has not just endured thousands of generations. The word of God will endure for all of eternity. You talk about being on the right side of history. How about eternal history? How about being on the right side of the authority of God's word? And Jesus is affirming that. What an interesting, and he's affirming it in a very poetic way. He's not just affirming the general words of the Bible, but he uses this phrase. I, I love these words. They're my favorite words in the Bible. I'm, I'm, one of them I like, one of them I don't prefer. Okay, but he says, one jot and one tittle. Okay, and it feels like a dirty word, so I'm going to try not to say it as much. But, uh, you know, in, in, in different translations, it kind of comes out differently. I'm sorry, I'm being too humorous today. But Jesus is speaking, he uses these two words. The word jot, when Jesus says that, that, that even every jot of the Bible will come true. Um, Jesus is referring to the smallest Hebrew letter in the, uh, smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The word yod is the, is the word, Okay. I'm going to show you both of these, all right? Uh, when Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law, he's speaking about the enduring power of the word of God. A jot is right there on the right, a yod. It's the smallest Hebrew letter. It looks almost like an apostrophe. That's how small it is. Now, when he uses this phrase, tittle, it has to do with the, the smallest stroke of a pen. And there are, were some Hebrew uh, letters that you wouldn't be able to differentiate between them if it wasn't for the small stroke of the pen. It's like a minuscule detail to a Hebrew letter that divides it up. And so here's Jesus saying this. Every single ounce of Scripture is the Word of God. Isn't that amazing? Talk about, you know, by the way, as you come back to me here, what this is called is having a high view of Scripture. That's what this is called. It's called submitting to the word of God, coming underneath the word of God. Look at Isaiah uh, 66. For all those things my hand has made and all these things on earth that exist, says the Lord. But on this, look at what God says here in Isaiah 66. But on this one I will look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Who's the man or the woman that God looks at, that God protects, that God defends, that God comes to bless? He says it's him who regards God's word as holy, who is rev has a reverent stance towards God's word. Jesus expounds on this. As he kind of further unpacks this, he, he talks about kind of our, our different responses to the Bible. Um, he says this in verse 19, whoever breaks, therefore, one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so, do so, right? So whoever does tear down the authority of Scripture with their life and teaches others, you should tear down the authority of Scripture as well as divine revelation. Whoever does that, he says, you're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is a play on words. He says, whoever leastens the Scriptures will be called least. Isn't that amazing? But whoever has a great view of the Bible, a great view of Scripture, who, like Isaiah says, trembles out the word of God as Jesus is modeling, he will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus here is giving us this almost recipe for a blessed life, a blessed eternity even. You, you could say it this way. Jesus is essentially saying that your experience of the kingdom of God in your life and beyond is directly related to your stance, posture, and treatment towards Scripture. 
How you approach scripture is how you approach the kingdom and how the kingdom approaches you. Not just forever, but even right now. And don't we know this? Don't we know how different life can be depending on how we're approaching scripture? We're either in a place of leastness or greatness. Uh, And here we see Jesus modeling this humble view that agrees with Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.16 that says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. We humble ourselves under the word of God. And um, uh, this is, and I want to say this about this point, and we'll move on to the last one. We'll close out. Um, Jesus' stance on scripture here as being authoritative, as being the the thing that we can bank on coming true, okay? Um, Which we can, as hard as things are right now, if there's anything you can bank on, it's that God is, is like, let every man be a liar, liar, but God be true. God is going to prove his word. Jesus will return. All things will work together for those who love God, okay? But as Jesus is leading us to have that sort of stance towards scripture and posture, or rather, as he is modeling it, I want to say this, uh, he is informing how we approach Scripture, all right? Uh, and, and to kind of communicate this, I want you to see this incredible quote from Pastor Andrew Wilson, who wrote a book on the Bible called Unbreakable. It comes from John 10, where Jesus says that the Scriptures cannot be broken. Uh, Andrew Wilson says this in his book Unbreakable. He says, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible, I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him. I've decided to follow him. So if Jesus, he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, he certainly does in this passage, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful. If Jesus does, then I will too. Even if some of my uh, questions remain unanswered, or even if my answers remain unpopular. Why do I trust in the authority of Scripture? Why do I submit myself and tremble underneath in reverence towards God's word? Because Jesus did. I don't trust Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus, who he is. And, I, and I'm a follower of Jesus. And if Jesus has a high view of Scripture, man, we're as a church and we as people, we as followers of Jesus need to tremble at the word of God. Amen? I heard it. I heard you say it, all right? Lastly, let's close with where Jesus ends here. In talking about the, the Bible, we see, lastly, Jesus' righteous standard from Scripture. Uh, we know one of, the, one of the most obvious ways that you can have reverence towards what God has said is to do it right? Otherwise, you don't really revere what he has said. If your boss tells you to do something and you don't do it, you actually don't really revere their authority. Uh, Jesus tells a parallel about the son, right? The one who, uh, father tells them both to do the same thing. The one son says, sure, father, I'll do it. And he goes off and he doesn't do anything. Then you have the other son that's like, kind of struggles with his father's authority. He's like, no, I'm not going to do it. But then he ends up doing it reluctantly. <laughs> it's like, you might as well do it, re- if you're going to do it, like at least do it reluctantly at the very least, okay? We should do it immediately, um, but he, he, Jesus gives this example of a son who, who, does it, who, who denies it passively. No, I don't, I'm not going to do it at all. And so Jesus talks here about obedience. One of the best ways to regard the word of God is to live according to it. Live according to who God is and what he's called me to. And he kind of turns up the heat here for this point. And he says to those looking on, um, 
taking such a high view of what the Bible commands, he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means, another translation says, you certainly won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you and I don't live in a culture of real professional scribes and Pharisees. We have people that are a lot like them, but we don't actually have a culture like this. So this might not really resonate with us as it did with those listening on, but this was, to those listening on, was potentially, without more context that Jesus will go on to give, this was a devastating statement. Because who doesn't want to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus here says, you have to be more righteous than the most righteous person, culturally regarded righteous person, the Pharisees. Now, I know we look at the Pharisees as like, the Pharisees, man, those guys, you know, those pious, self-righteous guys. And that's very true to a lot of them. But that can be a caricature. The Pharisees were those that were devout, devoutly dedicated to keeping the, the Torah. Uh, they were righteous in, in a behavioral sense. So Jesus, you're saying, you got to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. It's like Jesus saying, you need, in order to go to heaven, you need to be more artistic than Picasso. You need to be more athletic than LeBron, more intelligent than Albert Einstein, more musical than Beethoven, more attractive than Ryan Gosling. You need to be more caring, I was going to say Russ, but I changed it to Ryan Gosling, more caring than Mother Teresa. It's like, remember the disciples going, who then can enter the kingdom of God? This is impossible. So how then can you and I enter the kingdom of God if our righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? How can our righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? And there's two ways. The first way is that Jesus leads us to, and actually in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see Jesus lead us in a path of righteousness as our good shepherd that's a path of, right, uh, of, of um, deep righteousness, deep righteousness. And that's the first way that you can exceed a Pharisee's righteousness. You can exceed it in depth. Maybe not quantity, but quality. Uh, the Pharisees had a very surface-level righteousness. They did things because they were the right things to do. Even if your heart wasn't in it, I just did it because I want to be a good person. It was self-righteousness. It was external it wasn't heart level. And we're going to go on to see Jesus here in the next few weeks unpack the commands of the Torah and explain how they're meant to change your heart, not just your behavior. So he'll go on to say, I'll, I'll, take, I'll steal next week's thunder and say, he'll go on to say that, okay, have you murdered anyone? And for those of you that go, no, I haven't. I'm a good person. He goes, well, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder. The issue with murder is not the act. It's the heart. It's hate, which fuels that murder. It's a depth of righteousness that comes down to our very hearts. That's what the Spirit is trying to produce in the children of God. Not mere behavioral compliance, but heart transformation that sees the heart of God. But it's got to be so much more than that. Because uh, that's not the way that we enter the kingdom of God. Through having a deeper righteousness than the Pharisees. When you get to heaven, God's not going to go, all right. Let's see, here's the, here's the righteousness of a Pharisee. Come measure up. You've got to be this tall to ride the ride, all right? Let's see, was your righteousness deeper? Okay, did you do it for the right reasons? No, no. Um, remember Matthew 5, verse 3, the first words of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of God. You see, the people that are going to enter heaven, that have an exceeding righteousness, are not those that earned it at all. But what Jesus is talking about here and pointing to here is a righteousness that is a gift through faith. Um, Romans 10 has this incredible verse that says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, right? Um, By the deeds of the flesh, Romans 3 will say, no flesh will be justified. This is the difference between human righteousness, human achievement, and the righteousness that gives us access to heaven. The Pharisees operated with a self-righteous human achievement righteousness. It was a righteousness that, um, it was right doing that determined right standing with God. If I do right, I am right with God. But no amount of right doing can affect right being with God. Only the gospel can do that. And so Jesus comes into a world where no one, he says, is really righteous. No, not one. And nobody can enter the kingdom of God by their own deeds. No one can maintain their standing with God through right doing. Here's how you exceed the righteousness of a Pharisee. That's the righteousness of a Pharisee. Instead, here's a new righteousness that comes through faith. And what you do is you trade the righteousness of human achievement for the righteousness of divine intervention. Righteousness that's no longer self-determined and self-produced, but it's a righteousness that's received through the cross of Jesus. As Jesus went to the cross, he took upon himself our sin. He took upon himself the sin of a prostitute. He took upon himself the sin of a Pharisee the best of us culturally and the worst of us culturally. The Bible says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that our righteousness might exceed, exceed human achievement. Uh, Paul shares his own testimony of this in Philippians 3. And in Philippians 3, Paul says that concerning the law and concerning righteousness, Paul goes, man, if anyone was going to get to heaven based on their good deeds, Paul's like, it was me. For all of you out there boasting and gloating about how awesome you were, I love that Paul's a Christian evangelist speaking to Jews, and he's like, I was a better Jew than you are. You're just Jewish, you know? I was really Jewish, okay? I I was concerning the law. He says, I was a Pharisee. I had the righteousness of a Pharisee, but he says this incredible statement. He says, but what things were gained to me, my record of right doing that was causing me to be lifted up against those that were not as good as me, my record that was determining my right standing with God, these things that were gained to me, these I've counted loss for Christ, yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, literally in the Greek, a pile of dung, that I may gain Christ, notice this, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, like a Pharisee, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, trusting. Here's the work that we do to inherit eternal life. We trust in the righteousness of Christ. We receive the righteousness which is from God by faith. The Bible describes this idea of sola fide, that it's by faith alone in Christ that his perfect, substantial, and sufficient righteousness is credited to your and my account with the hope that we can inherit the kingdom of God, not just eternally, but even now, presently. 
This is where scripture led Jesus. This is where scripture should lead us. This ultimately is how Jesus feels about the Bible. How does Jesus feel about the Bible? He sees himself as the point of it, the fulfillment of it. He sees it as authoritative under which he is reverent and we should respond in the same way. And Jesus ultimately sees it as a tutor, the law, a tutor that, that, that was teaching us ultimately to come to Jesus and trust in him. Here's the big idea. It's all about Jesus. Okay? The Latin phrase for this is solus Christus. Christ alone. The Bible according to Jesus is all about Jesus. And so, man, I, I pray this for us today. That we certainly would become Bible people again. That we would reset ourselves to view the Bible the same way Jesus was. But it would be with the heart to be Jesus people. What a time right now for the children of God to be consuming the word of God. Learning more about who Jesus is. Becoming like Jesus. That we might respond like Jesus in the time that we're in. Now more than ever is the time for the people of God to submit themselves under the word of God that we could bring the kingdom of God into this very world that we're in. I pray that's true of your life. Let's worship God for who he is, the greatest gift of all, not just giving his word, but his son, Jesus.